Well, our passage today is found in 2 Samuel chapter 18. I want to encourage you to turn there. We're going to start with verse 24 and move on through to the first verses of chapter 19. And as you turn there, I want you to listen to two verses from 2 Samuel 23. So five chapters after that. And it's verse 3 and verse 5 of that chapter. David says, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? Now, I want you to think about those verses as you realize that David is commenting that God had appointed him to be a king whose house represented justice and the fear of the Lord. But, but he then has to confess that his house is not known for these things. His house, in fact, is a house of disorder. And what did he mean? That's, that's where morning's passage enters in. As we read this passage, I have no doubt that many of you parents will be able to either sympathize or empathize with David. Let's stand as we read here. 2 Samuel 18, starting with verse 24. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out, told the king, and the king said, if he's alone, there's news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer, and the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, see another man running alone. And the king said, he also brings news. And the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he's a good man and comes with good news. Then Himaaz cried out to the king, All is well! And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king answered, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And Himaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside, stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son? And it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned in the morning for all the people, for the people heard that day that the king is grieving for his son. And so the people stole into the city that day, as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life 
and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out, speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. And then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. Wow, what a passage. That is quite the passage. Let's pray. Father, as we digest this lengthy passage, as we think through what David must have been thinking, how he felt as a father, the obligations as a king, the commands of the Lord, his own reflections upon his life. Lord, help us, even to the degree that which we empathize and sympathize with David, Lord, that we would learn from your word today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we were in 2 Samuel 12. And the next five chapters, chapters 13 through 17, it's just, it's a list. It's a hall of shame list. It's the sins of several of David's sons, two of whom rebel against him. Uh, the situation with Amnon, situation with Absalom, we clearly see that David's house is in disarray. And so we can understand in chapter 23 when David comments on that disorder, but perhaps the most dramatic example of the chaos that ensued over these decades following chapter 12 is that of Absalom, whose rebellion forces David in chapter 17 to flee from his own kingdom. And there follows a lengthy conflict between David's forces and Absalom's forces, which ends oddly, right? When Absalom goes and gets his hair stuck in a tree limb while riding on a mule. And then he's struck down by David's general Joab. And that's, that's where the morning's passage comes in. And this messenger, Ahimaaz, comes to tell King David the news of Absalom's death. And on the one hand, the news... Well, it's good news for the kingdom, right? It is a victory. The civil war is over. Rebellion is crushed. David is, is confirmed as still being the king. But what parent cannot identify with David's action and his question there repeated a second time? But we see it in verse 32. Is it well with the young man Absalom? That's the only thing that he wants to know. Somehow, I think in David's mind, he thought we could, we could end this civil war. We could, we could do it as bloodlessly as possible. But most important of all, Absalom would still be living. That's, that's what David had hoped. But Absalom had led most of Israel against David. He had declared himself king. He had caused the deaths of hundreds of David's loyal men. He had defiled the women of David's household. And King David as a father, in the midst of that, all he wants to know is my son's safe. Can you dads identify with that? 
When Nehemiah answered that he was dead, we learn in verse 33 that he was deeply moved. He goes up into the chamber and he weeps. And so you have these runners. And understand, that's the way you got news. You didn't do it through text, right? You had to send your marathon runners back from the scene of battle to get there as quickly as possible. And you could see these runners for a long way. And you knew that they brought news. But imagine Ahimaaz in his position. He comes up, he's run this whole way to tell the news, and then the Cushite to the news. And you can tell by the very words that they say how, how good they think the news is. And then the king asks the one question that walks off, obviously distraught, and goes up. Maybe they could hear him weeping because it says as he went up, he was, you know, he was lamenting as he went up. And so you, you have this, this sheepish kind of, okay, feeling, right, by your runners who walk off. And you can understand in the passage why all of Israel suddenly feels like, and I know you can envision that scene, this army that has just put their lives at stake for their king has to steal furtively back to their homes for fear that their own king is going to be upset with them for killing his son. I mean, what a situation. And Joab is right. As bad a guy as Joab is, he is absolutely right. And he tells David some hard words. In verse 5 of, of chapter 19, they're honest. You've covered today with shame the faces of all your servants. He says, you've made it clear. Isn't that a powerful sentence there? You've made it clear today that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, that you would be pleased. And so this is a difficult moment for David, who has to pick himself up from his grief as a father and act like a king. And I I chose this passage as an example of what David is talking about in chapter 23 when he says... My house is not right with God. My house is not right with God. And in the midst of that, David is ascribing to the Lord these attributes of justice, of goodness. And he's making this contrast, even as he has in his mind the promise that God has said, I'm going to increase your house. Well, where were we last week? We were were right in the midst of God's judgment against David for his sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah. And so we understand David's marveling at the mercy and the grace of a God who in the face of all of this would still bless him. What a gracious and merciful God that we serve. Is there any way in which your life is like David's? Is there turmoil in your home? Is there concern over a child or a spouse, a parent? Do you wonder if sin, perhaps even generational sin in your family, can defeat God's promises? David's experiences with three of his sons might make us wonder about our own children. Here's David. He is blessed by the Lord. He is described as a man that God has selected to to follow after his own heart. He is a man whom God has committed to grow his 
family and line as a dynasty, and yet several of his children do not follow in his ways. They are rebellious, disobedient children, and David is not alone in the scriptures. We can look back at other famous fathers, at Adam with his son Cain, Abraham with Ishmael, Isaac with Esau, Aaron with Nadab and Abihu, Samuel and his sons, and you may be wondering if God's covenant, does it really What does God's covenant mean of being a God to us and our children? How confident can I be? We talked about, right, last week with David's expectations and what he was thinking about in terms of seeing his child. And and maybe this week we wonder, well, how strong is that conviction? How strong is that promise? We'll look at that this, this morning as well as compare what I would call a tale of two sons. Absalom, the handsome, privileged son of a father whom 1 Kings 15 describes as being faithful in all things, except with the wife of Uriah the Hittite, versus Jonathan, the faithful son of a rebellious father. And the first topic is one I want to address with regard to God's covenantal promises. How confident are we supposed to be? Are we expected to be? And like I said last week when we talked about David's expectation to see his departed son in heaven, we, we said that David had this expectation because God had initially made this promise here. We see it in Ab- to Abraham in Genesis seventeen seven. I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you into your offspring after you. Later in the book of Romans, believers are called the children of Abraham and heirs of that covenant. And so God says He will be a God to us and to our children after us for generations. I also mentioned a a promise implied from Malachi 2.15. Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring, so guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And the the strongly implied implication there is one of the normal purposes of God in bringing believing spouses together is godly offspring. God growing his kingdom purposefully, intentionally through his people. And of course, who cannot remember Solomon's words in Proverbs 22.6 to train up a child in the way that he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And it's encouraging, right, to us as parents to nurture our children with the proper training based upon God's principles. And there's this promise that seems to be given here in Proverbs 22. And we've talked about this proverb enough times in the past that I just want to, just a quick summary, because we have a lot of new people in the last few years that have come. What does Proverbs 22 say and not say quickly? It implies that human character can be cultivated. Unlike God, whose character is eternal and unchangeable, a child's nature begins enslaved to sin and eventually gives expression to a depraved character unless it is overcome by the power of divine grace. 
And the Holy Spirit does work first, but then he uses parents, godly parents, as instruments of righteousness to train and influence those children. And so parents, it's important that you know that you are more than just biologically related to your children. And so this effective parenting, it's a use of training, right? It's a use of developing an appetite in our children for the things of God. I see that reflected in Paul's tender words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, when he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, of faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. And, and Paul is saying more than just, isn't it nice that you are coincidentally, you know, three generations of faith. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying, Timothy, what a blessing that your grandmother Lois shared her faith with your mother Eunice, who then shared her faith with you. And as a result, God used that to shape who you are today. And a second implication from this thought process is that if human character is cultivated with the help of God by the power of His Word and training up of the principles of Scripture, then the failure to train children in the way they should go will potentially result in adults who are morally confused and weak, if not morally bankrupt. And so it means, parents, that there is also a warning in passages like Proverbs 22. We always say there's a promise, but there's also a warning. God has appointed you to be the instrument by which he brings his people to himself and especially to godly character. And I like what Matthew Henry once said, why do you give them a Christian name if you will not give them the knowledge of Christ and of the faith? God has owned them as his own children, born unto him. Therefore, he expects that they should be brought up for him. You are unjust to your God, unkind to your children, and unfaithful to your trust. If having by baptism entered your children into Christ's school and lifted them up under his banner, then not to train them up in the learning of Christ's scholars and under the discipline of his soldiers. Isn't that good? Unfaithful to your trust, if having by baptism entered your children into Christ's school, you should not train them up in the learning of Christ's scholars and under the discipline of his soldiers. And you'll remember from our study of Proverbs two years ago that a proverb is an inspired conclusion that is drawn from observing the past. It is meant to give you guidance in the present and the hope for the future. And because it's this wisdom that looks back and analyzes the experience of not only Solomon's own life, but also former generations and the revelation given by God, a proverb is not intended by that to be absolutely true. It is generally true. It is an analysis of those experiences and it is conclusions that, for example, there, if you train a child in the way that he should go when he is an adult, he will not depart from it. But not every child trained in a Christian home is guaranteed to embrace the faith. 
At the same time, just because a child is not trained in a Christian home doesn't automatically condemn him to being an unbeliever. We cannot remove the sovereignty of God from the equation of a child's salvation and turn Proverbs 22 into an automatic formula. But, as we said two years ago, a proverb is an inspired analysis. It's an inspired conclusion. So it's not just man's wisdom. This is God's stamp of approval as being accurate. So Proverbs 22.6 isn't just a moral cliche. And other types of comments like it aren't just saying, well, you know, a penny saved is a penny earned. It's meant to be a powerful motivator to you as parents. There are promised blessings and benefits to properly training your children. You are not meant to say, well, if everything amounts to God being sovereign, then I, then I really don't have to do anything. That's no more true of parenting than say it's true of evangelism. Whether a child grows up to be a believer is dependent upon God's grace, but it is wrong to say to train up a child or not to train up a child means nothing, just as it doesn't mean anything with regard to evangelism. So what better place is there to raise faithful children than in your home? Where else was God intending it to happen? In a Sunday school? And how better to bless faithful believers than to give them faithful children? I want you to think about that as well. To establish a multi-generational legacy in which life is about God as the center of home, life, and everything. Herman Witsius once said, Here is the extraordinary love of our God. Witsius was a Puritan. He says, in that as soon as we are born, he has commanded us to be brought from our mother's bosom, as it were, he says, into his own arms. And that he should give to us in the very cradle the tokens of our dignity and future kingdom, that he should put his song into our mouth. I believe that is what God has intended. I believe that's why we see a passage like Malachi 2. I believe it's why God gives and blesses families and says, I will be a God to your children after you. It just makes wise sense. Even as David writes in Psalm 22.9, you are he who took me from the womb and made me to trust you. David had the expectation that he would one day see his child again because the Bible calls upon us to grasp hold of those types of promises. Deuteronomy 17, Malachi 3, Proverbs 22, more that say God is my God and he is God to my children. God will bless the proper training of my children even though I know that ultimately his will will be done. God does desire godly offspring in my family. But what if we fail? What if we get caught up like David in the distractions of earthly life and become the absentee father or the, the neglectful mother? What if we don't train well? What if we don't train at all? 
Well, friends, God isn't bound by formulas. And the problem to begin with, with formulaic thinking, is that it's always too easily rooted in works righteousness and not enough of God's grace. So doctrinally, we reject the idea that we are saved by our works, and then we turn right around and act as if our works are what save our children. If I just use Abeka, if I just use Apologia you know, curriculum, if I just come faithfully to church, it's all going to work out. And we may not formulate it that way in our minds, but we often spell it out that way in our practical living. But friends, our parenting has to be carried out with a modesty and a humility that always keeps in mind that God owes nothing at all to us. That His purposes will stand either through us or despite us. Wendy and I, we've prayed with our children for decades. We have read God's Word to them. We've sought to train them in the ways of God, not because that somehow obligates God to show our children favor. Or because we fear that if we don't do things right and perfectly, that we'll spoil everything. We just don't have that kind of power. We do not have that kind of power. But we do those things because we believe that our children belong to God. We do those things because we are obedient to remind our children again and again who they are and who God is. See, that's the difference, right? The difference is not that we do those things because somehow we think the magic aid needs to be to see and out pops a Christian believer. We do those things because we believe fundamentally and foundationally these children belong to God and this is what we do as Christian parents. We remind them that they belong to their king. We remind them what God expects of them. We exhort them to serve him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love his people. And we keep praying. And we keep watching. And we keep exhorting and we keep loving, right? And is not the problem with imperfect parenting the same problem that we face with imperfect evangelizing? Who, who is adequate? Every godly individual knows how imperfect and consistent and how half-hearted he believes. Or he shares, or he thinks, or knows. So hear this, what makes your parenting effective is not the perfection of it, but rather the condescension and blessing of God. So when King David, for example, appeals to God in 2 Samuel 22, and he, he asks him to bless him. And he says to God, I've lived my life with integrity. And you, re- you go, I just read the first 10 chapters. I've lived my life with integrity. And yet, David is not making a claim to sinlessness. He knows full well his sins, including his great sin against Uriah. 
And yet the Bible bears witness to the fact that God counts as faithful obedience that which is far from a perfect faith. Remember that. The Lord in His grace counts your faith in Him as righteousness. And even that faith is imperfect. Even that faith is inadequate. How merciful that God treats our imperfect faith and our imperfect obedience a great deal better than they deserve because of Christ. Boy, do we fail in so many ways. We let culture have too great an influence on our family. We're ineffective or harsh disciplinarians. We teach discipline inconsistently. Sometimes we do it consistently, but then we set a bad example ourselves, right? They're often connected to the many consequences that we see playing out in our children. We, we watch those things and we go, oh, I know where that's coming from. I know where that's coming from. Oh, that is exact. That is probably an exact consequence of my impatient, impulsive lack of self-control over my anger. And look, I'm seeing it come out in this son. And I believe similar failure played a huge factor with regard to King David's children. So hear the balance this morning. God can and does operate through His Holy Spirit despite imperfect parenting, but there are often consequences to failure in parenting. God can certainly overcome that failure, but even that will be according to His mercy. Many of you have stories. Many of you come out of circumstances like you're saying, and you're saying to yourself, God certainly was merciful to me and took me in the way that my parents raised me and made something good. He redeemed that. And God can. And as a church, we went through the book of Judges not that long ago. And one thing was abundantly clear from that study. The result of a generation that does not know God is great sin and tragedy. And so we find ourselves... Making those pleadings. We, we know our imperfections. We know our inconsistencies. We're seeing sometimes the consequences in our families. We are pleading for that next generation because we know how quickly it can turn. And so we find ourselves pleading like Solomon in the Proverbs. Do not be like the fool. Be like the one who is firmly planted. And so what I want to convince you of today, many of you have heard this from me in the past, you know it is a constant desire for us and our family, and I believe in most of yours, the, stakes, the stake is the soul of our children. Where are the hearts of our children? What will the next generation be like? And are we diligently waging this war 
Do not let your job as a parent become just another project or a duty to fulfill. It is a duty, but it is one of the most sacred callings you will ever receive. Trust in the Lord. Know that you cannot save your children by your works. And in that regard, I think about this example of Absalom. I said the tale of two sons. Here he was in the perfect family, one would think. He was son of God's anointed king, the one whom 1 Kings 15, like I said, described as being faithful in all things except for the matter of Uriah the Hittite. This is David. David, who loved the Lord, who wrote most of the Psalms. So Absalom was not a PK, he was a KK, he was a king's kid, right? He had everything going for him. He's described as handsome, charismatic. He's a man's man. 2 Samuel 14, 25 says, Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Wow, he's a a perfect specimen. Not even his earlobe was improperly shaped. And when Absalom declared himself king, he was so popular and well-liked that much of the country follows him. And he would have been a natural candidate for first choice as a believer, wouldn't he? Of course. King's kid, perfect in so many ways, but guess what? He was not. And we contrast Absalom with Jonathan. Jonathan, the son of Saul, the rebellious, disobedient king, and yet Jonathan was faithful to the Lord, even in the midst of his father's rebellion. So you have Absalom, son of a faithful king, becomes a rebel. Jonathan, son of a rebellious, disobedient king, becomes a treasured friend of David and a steadfast supporter of God's promises, even to his own hurt. Even to his own hurt. He ends up dying as a result of his father's foolishness and rebellion. And you go, where is the fairness in all of that? Is it what we would have expected? Who would have figured it, right? And yet such are the ways of God. It just reminds us that The Lord may choose or not choose to regenerate a child of a particular family. He can save a child despite a parent's failures and lack of belief because salvation is about grace. Never forget that. It's so easy in a church like ours where we talk about proper parenting and proper family living and you know interaction between the church and the home and all of those things to begin to forget that salvation ultimately still is all about grace and if you have failed know that it is never too late for God's grace to conquer even the most challenging of situations do any of you feel like you are in a challenging situation that is beyond solution? It's not. 
If you have given in to despondency thinking that there's too much water under the bridge, then you may need to repent of that and start again because we serve a God who's more powerful than that. Not only that, but I remind you again of what David prays in 2 Samuel 23, 5. Although my house is not so with God. Although my house is filled with chaos and rebellion and I have greatly sinned against God and I'm sitting here wondering, how did I get here? And how do I get out of this situation? Yet God has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. God is good despite our sins. So friends, go forth in that confidence. Wage this war for the souls of your children, the life of your spouse, whatever it is, the challenge that you're facing, and know that God is good. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your mercies towards us and the fact that we have you to count on. We look at an example like David, and for many of us, this is this is a, an, an example that hits close to home, so to speak. It is an example of a family in disarray, of adult children who are leading lives of rebellion. And it causes us to wonder, is there a hope? We see what happens with Absalom. We see what happens with Amnon and Adonijah. Is that way it will play out? And yet we see David's faithful words. Even in the midst of a home that is filled with chaos, yet, Lord, you are gracious to us. You give us a way through your Spirit. And I pray for the families here that may be facing those types of situations. Help them not to be despondent. Help